Hello and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Thanks for being with us. We're going to start this episode with the House Select Committee formed to investigate the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. What's happening and has happened thus far is a script that could have been written by a high school student with a rudimentary knowledge of politics. After House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called for a 9-11 type investigation by a committee not made up of elected officials, the Republicans made some demands that are interesting to examine. They wanted the terms domestic violent extremism and white supremacy taken out of the legislation establishing the commission. Why, you may ask? Did they want those terms struck from the commission's mandate? The answer is as old as racism itself. House Republicans can't stand to see extremism in the name of white supremacy called out in any way, shape, or form. I think they know what January 6th is all about, yet they're all in such fear of their Lord and Savior Donald Trump that they can't get themselves to admit that was the root of the insurrection. That's right, extremism and white supremacy, as American as apple pie. Be that as it may, the Senate shot down the proposal. Pelosi pressed on anyway, establishing a House Select Committee of Congress people rather than academics and others. The committee would have been composed of seven Democrats and six Republicans. Five of the six from the GOP would be appointed by Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. The other, Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney, was appointed by Pelosi. Now, that's what the committee would have been composed of. But that's where things got dicey. Among those appointed by McCarthy were Jim Banks of Indiana and Jim Jordan of Ohio. Both of these people voted against impeaching Donald Trump and refused to certify Joe Biden as president. Pelosi, who had the power to reject any or all of McCarthy's picks, did allow one Biden denier to remain on the committee. No matter. McCarthy pulled all his picks when Pelosi rejected Banks and Jordan. All his picks. And at the same time, he announced that he'd be forming his own committee. No one's really sure what power this rogue band of Republicans would actually have. But all this up until now, again, is entirely predictable. People were talking about it well before all the things that took place this past week. People thought that McCarthy would name some people that Pelosi would not be able to tolerate. And he did, and she wasn't. And now McCarthy's saying, well, I'm going to go form my own committee. And we know what that means. Now is a time, I think, for a lack of predictability on the part of those who are seeking the truth of January 6th. The first order of business ought to hold, ought to be, that is, holding the cowards of the Republican Party accountable for statements that tried to minimize the import of the insurrection. You know, those who said that the insurrectionists were patriots, or no more than a group of tourists. You know, people like Congressman Paul Gosser, Ralph Norman, and Andrew Klein. These three are beyond delusional with some of the statements they've made, and they belong in the Congressional Hall of Shame, along with Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Lauren Boebert. 
if McCarthy actually does form his own committee, because he hasn't done it yet, to look into January 6th, how much you want to bet at least one of those clowns is appointed to it. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to take the gloves off and let the chips fall where they may. It appears to me that January 6th was an organized, armed insurrection by people determined to stop the certification of Joe Biden as president. They were supported by Republicans in Congress, both in the House and the Senate, who bought into the lie that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. People died. People, including police, were injured. And the People's House was violated in a way that hopefully we will never, ever see again. Any attempt that is to shade the truth must be called out and debunked. And at the heart of the attack was none other than Donald Trump. He can duck, he can dodge, he can lie, he can shade the truth any way he wants. January 6th was on him, and he knows it, and his enablers know it. That he remains the undisputed king of the Republicans is a testament to how far right-wing lunacy has permeated the very fabric of American democracy. Mississippi Congressman Benny Thompson chairs this committee. Now, I've interviewed Benny Thompson in the past. He's a moderate Democrat, solid Democrat, but a moderate Democrat. And the GOP ought to thank their lucky stars that he's in charge. Be glad, Republicans, it was an AOC. Here's a suggestion for the first order of business. That is just coming from me. Subpoena all those right-wing Congress people who spread and promoted the big lie about last year's election. Let them explain to the American people why they bought into the fantasy of a grifter president. And I say that without fear of contradiction. A grifter president. Do you know that this guy is still making money from trying to overturn the election? He's still taking donations. He's obviously not too deep into trying to get anything done, but he's still taking the money of people who are, how best to put this, straight up suckers for his game. Now, as for the Trumpers, that spell will not be broken until a good number of candidates he backs lose in primaries and lose in general elections. When that happens, expect the king of the Republicans to take absolutely no responsibility and instead blame the very people he endorsed. We've seen it happen before, and we're going to see it happen again. And by the way, while we're at it, am I the only person who sees a kind of common thread among these members of Congress? Until very, very recently, they were anti-vaxxers. They were pro-voter suppression. They were pro-denial of January 6th. They were rapidly against critical race theory. All of these people have this common point. They're all seemingly part of the same political gene pool. Why don't we just leave it there? Up next, climate change around the globe. Still think we have time to do something about it? Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook.
Welcome back to The Intersection. China, Western Europe, especially Germany, Russia, the Northwest states of the U.S., Canada, what do they all have in common? Extreme weather. That would include flooding, withering heat, wildfires, and questions about whether more people should have been paying attention to Greta Thunberg's warning not too long ago. While governments set climate goals so far in the future they'll never be held accountable for not reaching them, Mother Nature seems to have other ideas. To quote the noted philosopher George Clinton, Mother Earth is pregnant for the third time, for y'all have knocked her up. The question becomes this, when will we, as human beings, get serious about climate change? And I do mean serious about climate change. We're certainly not serious now. And here, in a nutshell, are the consequences. In China, at least 33 people have died due to flooding, with 12 losing their lives in a flooded subway car. And that number has gone up. It is higher than 33. Photos of the affected areas show cars piled on top of each other, people trying to wade through waist-high water and worse. And scientists say, it's because warmer air holds moisture longer and then dumps it in the form of more intense rainfall than you would see under normal circumstances. In China, a record of almost eight inches of rain fell in just one hour. I'm gonna say that again, eight inches of rain in one hour. It's also what's happening in Western Europe. In Germany, the death toll has reached 200, with whole villages wiped out due to flooding. Chancellor Angela Merkel describes it as terrifying as she was touring devastated areas. Though not as devastating, flash floods caused big problems both in New York City and in London earlier this month. Any city with underground infrastructure like subways has to deal with water cascading down station steps and through open grates and into stations, making riding the trains quite a bit hazardous. Then there's the Western U.S. and Canada. Flooding is not the issue there. Extreme heat and wildfires are doing the damage, and it's as horrifying as the floods. There are usually some level of wildfires in the western U.S. at this time of year. But this time around, it's been more intense, with temperatures in places like Oregon and Washington State reaching 110 degrees Fahrenheit and higher. That means the wildfires are more intense, with the bootleg fire in Oregon the nation's largest, consuming more than 360,000 acres of land, some of it traditionally used by indigenous people in the, in the region. Here's the thing. Climate scientists have been warning for years that these types of calamities would come unless humankind found a way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that were warming and continue to warm the earth. Think back a few years. Climate deniers mocked those expressing concerns, citing every coal snap in America as proof there was no global warming. What are they saying now? Crickets. How long ago was it that Donald Trump told Greta Thunberg to chill, Greta, chill? One wonders what he's thinking now. Again, 
on the wrong side of history as he has been so many times. And I do emphasize so many times in the past. There are questions about whether cities and villages affected by both flooding and wildfires and heat gave residents accurate information about the dangers faced. Of course, that's a political question and politicians get paid to provide answers, or at least that's the theory. Speaking of which, we'll get a better idea of how seriously some of these same politicians take climate change in November when the uh, COP26 climate change summit takes place in Glasgow, Scotland. Will the heads of major nations commit to changing the way we live to fight this crisis? Now, there are some places that have already been called out as not necessarily being up to the task. We'll leave that where it is for now. It's four different countries, and uh, I'm not going to call them out here, but if you Google them, you'll find out who they are. One thing that must be done, and soon, countries around the world will have to be far more transparent about their efforts to combat the climate crisis and how close or far away they are to fulfilling the goals they commit to. We have said this before, and I'm going to say it again. Words are cool. Actions are better. And climate change is something we can no longer afford to put off till the great by and by. You know, and and it, it's sad to me because I did a segment in the previous episode about climate change. And that was before all of these calamities began visiting various regions of the country. We didn't even talk about India, who were having mudslides as a result of continuous rain. This is not, although some people are going to say these are acts of God and it's God uh, expressing his or herself in a way to say to humankind, do better. Maybe it is, you know, but I do believe that we do have to do better. We do have to work at climate change. Now, some places are more serious about it than others. For example, the United Kingdom says they're going to go all electric by the year 2030, which is not really all that fuss nine years from now. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to pull all the gas and diesel cars off the road, but they are only going to allow electric vehicles to be sold in the UK in nine years. That's a laudable goal. But let's see whether or not they can actually make it work. You know, a lot of people who are pushing back against this just like there are people like Donald Trump who pushed back against warnings going back many years about climate change. And to be honest with you, we don't have all that much time. We really don't. And I'm thinking at this point, people ought to be recognizing that. Certainly people in Oregon and Washington State and up in British Columbia, up in Canada, and to an extent in New York, and certainly in Germany and Western Europe, where all these things are going on, and in China. And China, you know, China is not the world's greatest uh, climate-friendly nation, okay? They use, they burn a lot of fossil fuels. They have a lot of heavy industry that burns a lot of fossil fuels. And the Chinese have a tendency 
to make commitments, again, as I mentioned earlier, to do something about it in the great by and by. Well, that's not good enough anymore, China. It's not good enough anymore, America. Because America depends on fossil fuels a lot. A lot more than other smaller countries. And when I say smaller, I'm talking about geographically. The United States is a big country. And people have become quite used to jumping in their cars and driving wherever they want to go. That is going to have to change. And it's going to be, and people are going to, you know, particularly the Republicans, because they're in the main, the climate change, they're going to jump up and say, oh no, we don't have to do that. These people are alarmists. There's no, it's not that bad. And see, what they're doing is running, in, running rather, interference for the fossil fuel industry. Because the fossil fuel industry lines a whole lot of political pockets in America. A whole lot. Now, I don't know whether people think this is something new. Because it's not. But it's something that must, and I mean must be addressed. Words are cool. Actions are better. And finally in this episode, the pandemic that's giving the United Kingdom fits. This is The Intersection. What's happening in your world? Is there an issue you'd like me to talk about? Hit me up with a comment on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Monday, July 19th was billed as Freedom Day here where I'm at in the United Kingdom. Virtually all COVID restrictions were removed. And I guess the government figured people would be jumping for joy and revel in their newfound, quote, freedom, end quote. Well, it hasn't exactly turned out that way for a number of reasons. Despite rescinding the requirement that people wear masks in many cases, an awful lot of English people are still wearing them, especially indoors. In addition, Freedom Day came as the number of coronavirus infections was rising. Yes, folks, rising. Insult to injury a small number of people became infected after having two vaccinations. One of my favorite media people over here is a guy named Andrew Marr, who does a Sunday public affairs show on BBC One. He had both jabs, as they say here, both vaccinations, and still caught COVID. Now, it was a relatively mild case. He was off the air for a week, and then he was back. But more and more, we see people end up double vaccinated and still catching COVID. Now, the important thing to realize about that is that you reduce your risk of getting COVID, whether you've had it before or not, if you're double vaccinated. Now, you can choose not to get vaccinated, but don't be surprised if you, in fact, end up getting COVID. There have been a couple of people in the U.S., very prominent people, one very prominent pastor, who was a vax denier, 
and then caught COVID. And now he's become the lead cheerleader for getting the vaccine. Now, whatever happened in the States, over here in the UK, uh, Freedom Day turned out not to be so free. Whatever the reasons for people who are double vaccinated getting coronavirus, the events came together to spook the British people. And yet, there's another twist. No sooner was Freedom Day declared that the nation's health secretary announced he'd gotten infected. That's right, the health secretary. And here's where it gets even more strange. The British have a system of tracking and tracing people who have come into contact with someone who was infected. In short order, Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Chancellor of the Exchequer Rishi Sunak were pinged, which normally would mean they'd have to self-isolate, quarantine for 10 days. At first, Johnson said he and Sunak were participating in some unknown to the British people pilot program that would allow them to dodge the self-isolation requirement. Now, here's something that bears explanation here. If you are told by the NHS, the National Health Service app in Britain, that you have come in contact with someone who had coronavirus, that you are not necessarily legally required to self-isolate. However, if you are contacted by the test track and trace system, you are legally obligated. And the strangest thing about all this is that it only is in force until August 16th, which is less than a month from now. But what kind of havoc can be wreaked in a month? After fierce criticism, both Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak said they'd self-isolate like most Britons were being asked to do. How nice. How generous. But therein lies the rub. As the infection rates continued to rise, so too did the number of people pinged and told to self-isolate. Before anyone knew it, more than 600,000 people had to stay home from work, creating havoc in many sectors of the British economy. Everyone from sanitation to transport to food service began to report critical staff shortages as what came known to be the pandemic, the pandemic, excuse me, the pandemic expanded almost geometrically. People were telling the media that they'd been pinged through a wall since they hadn't gone out anywhere. And that this more than one person had that happen. Beyond that, August 16th is supposed to be the date that quarantining, if you came in contact, not when someone actually had coronavirus, not if they had actually been infected, but if they had come in contact with someone, that was when they had to self-isolate. Now, imagine for a second that you are a single mother out on your own with a couple of kids. And after following all the lockdown rules for the better part of 18 months, you finally get yourself a job, all right? You're working. may not be for a lot of money, but you're working. You're able to put food on the table. And then suddenly, through no fault of your own, you get pinged and told that you have to isolate for 10 days. Now, in a lot of 
employment situations, both in the States and in Britain, you're put on probation for a certain amount of time, during which your employer can fire you for no reason whatsoever. What do you think that single mother will do if she's told to self-isolate and potentially lose her job? Do you think that she might think twice about self-isolating, especially if she was told through the NHS app? And the other byproduct of this is that large numbers of people in Britain were simply discarding the app so they wouldn't have to worry about whether or not they got pinged. Because if you don't have the app, you don't get pinged. Now, heads of numerous sectors of the economy in Britain began to loudly complain about, among other things, empty store shelves, canceled trains and buses, overflowing garbage bins, and a whole lot more. The government then began to exempt certain segments of the economy from having to quarantine at all. Daily testing would be okay, according to the government. Yet the edict caused even more confusion and chaos. For example, while food supply chain workers were exempt, supermarket workers were not. So who would stack the shelves even if there was product to put on them? To date, some 10 to 20% of key economic sectors are short-staffed, and the fact is, the ping and the pandemic is a big part of the reason. The British have a word for all this. It's called shambolic. And here's the kicker. British economic growth, robust just a couple of months ago, has slowed considerably in July. In fact, it slowed while the European zone's economies are rising and growing. Now, maybe Boris Johnson and company have a way around all this rather than the paint-by-numbers approach they're now using. The cynic in me says they don't, just like Trump had no clue how to deal with COVID. The problem for them is that the British people were promised much in the wake of Brexit. You remember Brexit? That was when they decided to leave the European Union. So far, pandemic aside, the government has failed to deliver. But just like Trump, Boris Johnson seems to have developed a cult of personality that allows him to spin every problem away by referencing the admittedly world-class vaccination program that the country used to at least get away from having the highest number of deaths in Europe earlier in the pandemic. Let's see what happens when the rubber meets the road. Quarantine until August 16th may just cause the government to lose the consent of the people. If that happens, watch out. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.